Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. When you, when you open up a deep book, there's a certain body of knowledge that the, that the author, the tzaddik, you know, the sage, assumes that you already know. And so a lot of what he's talking about is like very exalted. But the problem is, is that it's being received by people who don't have that foundation. And so, so you have a very odd transaction taking place where these very high level thoughts are now being understood as very sort of introductory thoughts. So it's this weird mix where you... You kind of get it, but you kind of don't get it at the same time. I'll tell you, just in my own personal experience, I I can't recommend more the books of Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan, and he has so many of them. And I think many of you are, are very familiar with him and with his work. He's an unbelievable Torah personality who left the world at a relatively a very, very young age. And sort of like one of the legends around his death was that he was just revealing too much. Can you imagine? He was writing books on, on the Zohar and the Bahir and the Sefer Yitzira and translating these things into English. And at the same time that he was like this awesome, awesome Torah scholar, he was also this very advanced physicist. And I heard from someone that Robert J. Oppenheimer, who was the head of the Manhattan Project, which built the first atomic bomb that ended World War II, right, and ushered in the atomic age, that toward the end of Oppenheimer's life, he just needed someone to kind of just sit with him, almost like a secretary, just who he could just talk physics, like he could kind of work out his ideas and just have someone who could follow him. And so believe it or not, one of Rabbi Kaplan's jobs toward the end of his life was just to sit there with Oppenheimer. Can you imagine what level of physics you had to know? In fact, Rabbi Ari Kaplan, I heard this from someone who was best friends with him, and he told me that his math IQ was so high that it couldn't be measured. And... What does that mean exactly? Because that sounds like a little bit like maybe embellished, right? Like, or like as a turn of phrase, it's so high it couldn't even be measured. No, no, no. He actually meant it. And, and this is, this is, this is what he meant, which is that this particular IQ test was in part measured on how long it took you to answer the question. Do you understand? Okay, fine. So now listen to this. As soon as they asked the question, he had the answer. Like immediately after they asked the question, he already had the correct answer, which means that they literally couldn't measure his IQ. (laughs) The fact that he didn't have to think at all made it impossible to truly gauge the fullness of his brilliance. Isn't that something? Amazing, right? Rabbi Kaplan gave people like me, people like us, such a gift because he took a lot of the classic works of Judaism, which were only in Hebrew, 
And we're basically just kind of like off limits to anyone who really didn't really kind of grow up in the system and had really advanced in the system. And he made them accessible to an English-speaking audience. Now, does that mean that you really understand what these texts are saying? Well, I mean, if you want to be intellectually honest, you absolutely don't understand what these texts are saying. Can you perhaps gauge a little bit? Yes, you can. And is that an extraordinary gift to us? Yes, it is. And should you be reading those more advanced things with a rabbi who's a Torah scholar? Absolutely. Because those little bits that you think you understand, you absolutely have the potential (laughs) to not understand it all and to twist into something that they're not saying in the slightest. So it's an opportunity that he's given us, but it's an opportunity that comes with, with a lot of caveats and, and a, lot of, a lot of humility that we have to exercise because he's, he's leaving it up to us to know that we don't know. And kind of the problem is, is that so many people are, into a, are in such a rush to know because they have an awesome, authentic hunger. But they also have to understand that certain things can't be digested right away. And that you have to be a little bit disciplined in terms of your intake of the esoteric. Because everything needs foundations, and then foundations upon foundations. So... I'll give you just a very kind of horrific example of what I'm talking about. It's just something I heard about one time, but it sort of kind of stayed with me in a a kind of one of these things, bits of information that's haunted me a little bit, which was, can you imagine, I mean, what it would be like to survive being in a concentration camp? I mean, I can't. But there are examples of this, apparently, very tragic, just super tragic. There are people who actually survived Auschwitz and places like this. And then when the people came in with food, I mean, these were people who were, you know, like, like moments away from starving to death. And then all of a sudden, there was all the food you could eat, right? They died from the food. They died because they were so hungry their bodies couldn't metabolize the food. So, you know, there are a lot of different kinds of deaths. And that's a physical death that we're talking about. But if someone sort of like advances themselves too quickly and doesn't know what to do with this type of information, they can experience a different kind of death. Right? Sometimes, ironically, it can even lead to disbelief. You know, you wouldn't think that something that's so exalted and such a high level of teaching and information could lead to disbelief, but it can lead to disbelief if the person doesn't know how to understand the information. Then they go, oh, it means that? And it's like, oh, I could never believe that. But they they didn't understand what it was saying to begin with. Do you understand? So there's all, all sorts of all sorts of things that we have to be careful about. But what I'm trying to say is, getting back to this initial thought about how people can communicate 
like the tops of mountains. And for us, when we're just starting out, a lot of times that's the first things that we're learning. So we're, we're, we're standing on these tops of mountains at street level. So it's a little bit crazy. But, but it's the experience that I've had in learning Rabbi Kaplan's books because I first started out reading his primers. Now, he's got these like amazing introductions to the mitzvahs, to mikvah, for instance. He's got a book. You want to know about the mikvah? He'll, he'll tell you about the mikvah in just a few pages. Amazing stuff. Tefillin, you want to know about tefillin? He'll tell you about tefillin. And he writes in these clear, easy-to-understand sentences, and then you look at the footnotes, <laughs> and your brain explodes. This is from the Zohar. That's from eight different Talmudic passages all over Shas that he's put together. You know, this is from the Medrash. That's from a Medrash that he himself translated from Ladino. I mean, it's just incredible. What I'm trying to say is that later in life, I've returned to some of his writings. And all of a sudden you go, oh my God, that's what he was saying. I thought he was just saying these introductory ideas. Now that I know, like, years more of learning, I'm looking at those same sentences and I'm realizing he was talking from the most advanced place in the most simple language. Wow. So let's get back to the Torah. I had a challenge this week. I was, I was learning with the rabbi that I learned with in the mornings and he said, oh, you're in New York, do you want to give a talk? I said, oh, okay. And 10 minutes later, I got a call from a rabbi who said, do you want to teach the introduction to Hasidic thought class at Stern College tomorrow? I thought, okay, I'll, I'll try that. So I was thinking, what am I, how am I going to introduce Hasidic thought? Now, it wasn't the f- first day of the class, but, but it, was, it was a wonderful opportunity for me because I sort of wanted to, to explain it to myself. Which, by the way, is all these talks. All these talks are only an outgrowth of me trying to explain these concepts to myself. Just, just so you know, just, just in case you were wondering. This is not me deciding like, oh, wouldn't it be fabulous to teach people Torah? That, that's not what's going on here. This, was just, this is just all an outgrowth of me trying to understand these ideas. And at a certain point, I was like, oh... Maybe I can share my understanding of these ideas with other people. They might be interested. Just, just in case you're wondering what's going on here. Anyway, so, so let me tell you, because I had to kind of really focus it. And then we're going to build some teachings on top of this, okay? But what, what I wanted to share, and I'm, I'm kind of cutting to the middle of, 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 of what I told them, but what I want to share is the following. You see, over here, I have a, a Torah book. And a lot of people, their relationship with God is when they open up a book. Now, that could be a Torah book. That could be a prayer book. But when the book is open, God is here. Right? Or even when they walk into, say, 
a house of worship, right? When they walk into the house of worship, God is here. But that's really problematic because God is never not here. (laughs) And so the whole idea that I relate to God when the book is open, that's not it. I mean, if we want to get to like these kind of like premise thoughts of what it means just to be living in this world, what it means to be a part of reality, we've got to get beyond the idea that God is here when I open up the book or that I understand God's word or my mission in life or why there is anything through the pages of the book. So now listen to this. What I want to do is shift your consciousness or open up your mind to the following idea. Reality itself is the open book. Do you understand? Everything around you, the universe itself, is the text. I'm going to say that again. The universe that we're engulfed in itself is the text. And now let me support that with some more imagery, okay? We have a very exalted teaching, which is that every Jew is a letter in the Torah. Okay? And if one Jew is missing, if one letter is missing from the Torah, the entire Torah scroll, this is the Jewish law, the entire Torah scroll can't be used. You can't make a blessing over it if one letter is missing. So each person is a letter of the Torah. All of us have to be there. Now, if reality itself is the text, that means every person I'm meeting is a letter. That means that every single person that I'm meeting and interacting with can teach me something. That means every group that's together is a word or a verse from the Torah that I'm interacting with full body in real time. Let me tell you something. All of life is an ongoing conversation between God and us. And how does God speak to us? Through the people we meet and through the situations he puts us in. This is how the dialogue takes place. And how do we talk back to God? Well, you can talk to him directly. But as much is going to be in how do you interact with his creatures and how do you interact in the situations and the opportunities that he's talking with you through. Because all of this, all of your waking moments, and when you're asleep too, by the way, is this ongoing conversation with God that's taking place. Now, I'll give you one of my favorite examples of that. When I first learned this, it was life-changing for me. So... Avraham Avinu, Abraham, 
circumcises himself, he gets the commandment to circumcise himself when he's 99 years old. And he himself performs the procedure, which is amazing, right? Okay. Now, Abraham gets visited by God on the third day that he's recovering, which Rashi says is the most painful day. And it's an incredibly hot day. And he sees these three strangers who the the rabbis teach manifested themselves. They were angels. He didn't know that. But they manifested themselves as Arab idol worshippers. Okay? So not as these holy, saintly-looking people. Rather, as idol-worshipping Arabs. And Abraham was all about hospitality. He was all about just like, just opening up people's minds to the oneness of God. And so God is visiting Abraham. And by the way, this is the source from which we learn to visit the sick. And all of a sudden, Abraham runs, doesn't walk. Remember, he is still healing. And it's like the hottest day ever because God wanted to make it too hot for people to be out walking because he didn't want to bother Abraham. But at the same time, he saw in his heart how much he just wanted to do this great mitzvah of hospitality, which he had, you know, built a lot of his life on. So, so God couldn't, couldn't not, right? He couldn't not allow him to do this because he wanted to do it so badly. So he sends these angels. Anyway, God's in the middle of visiting him. And Abraham runs to these strangers. Okay, so now here's the question all the rabbis ask. How could Abraham have interrupted God? Like, if you think about it, like chutzpah, like what a disrespect. And now here's the amazing answer. I heard this from Rabbi Grumman years ago. He said, God forbid you should think that Abraham was interrupting the conversation Rather, he was continuing it and deepening it by relating to God's creatures. Because Abraham understood all of the events in his life and all the people that he was interacting with was an ongoing conversation with God. So don't think for a second that Abraham was interrupting God. He was just continuing the conversation on another level but never losing consciousness that he was interacting with God. Okay. So this is what it is. This is our life. Now, with this in mind, I want to tell you something that's challenging, okay? Because I want to, I want to tell you what most people do. And when I say most people, I'm talking about sincere religious people, okay? So this is, this is theoretically the best of us, and, and I'm going to just show you right now how this is not even approaching where we need to be. Let me tell you how most people go through life. Oh. Most people go through life in the following way, and I'm talking about the religious mentality. They dive in the morning prayers, and they say, Okay, when they finish, they say, Okay, God, see you, after, see you at Mincha. See you at the afternoon prayers. <laughs> or, what, what, hap- what about in between? Right? What about in between? Like this idea that you walk into a house of worship, you walk into a shul, and then somehow you walk out, and God's not there anymore? Or, 
or the idea that you walk in and then suddenly God is in the world? Like, both sides make no sense. Do you understand? Well, how about this? How about someone goes and, and again, we're talking about people who are doing, quote unquote, the right thing. They're, they're, they're about to have, let's say, a meal and they're going to eat bread. So we know we have to wash our hands, you know, ritually speaking, before we eat bread. So you say, okay, I'm going to make the blessing over the bread. And then you say, okay, God, I made the blessing. See you at Grace After Meals. <laughs> What about during the eating? God, go, God just comes when you when you say hamotzi lechem min hearts and then shows up again at benching. Like you say good, you say goodbye to God like during the meal. Like what? By the way, like a super cool teaching that I saw from the Noam Eli Melech is that when someone is eating, you want it like a, a like a kavana, something holy to think about when you're eating. He says, you're supposed to picture the letters Mem, Aleph, Chaf, and Lamed. Me'achot, that, 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 that spells the word basically to eat. But it's the Gematria 91, Mem, Aleph, Chaf, and Lamed. You picture those letters in front of you. Gematria 91 is one of those big Gematrias. It's, it's the name of Hashem, Yudke Vavke plus Aleph, Dalet, Nun, and Yud, another name of Hashem. And basically what that stands for is God, the master of heaven and earth. So you can think of probably a lifetime of explanations while you're eating, thinking of those letters. In other words, this food that's nourishing me, the God of heaven and earth, the energy is coming from heaven. That's the inside of the food, right? And it's feeding my body. That's, that's the earthly plane that I'm on. And as I'm eating, I'm bringing down this heavenly divine energy into my soul and the exterior of the food is nourishing my body, right? And I'm combining them together and it's all coming from God. So that would be one example of what you can be thinking about while you're eating right? But again, the idea is living with God. I don't know if, you, if any of you know this, by the way, but the name of my website is livingwithgod.org. <laughs> and I, I had to come up with that like years ago. I'm like, okay, what, what should I call my website? And, and because that's, that's really what all of this is about. That's really what the Torah is about, living with God. I've told you before, Rabbi Green once said something great about movies. He said, the classic, like, romantic story structure is boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl. And many of these sort of like rom-coms and things like that, romantic comedies, end with the wedding scene, and then that's the end of the movie. And Rabbi Green says, I want to know what happens next. That's when I'm most interested. Like, now that they have each other, how do they live together? And so that's the idea between us and God. We have God, God has us, God has us. Now what? How do we live together? That's that's really the 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 foundation of our experience during these, you know, decades in a body, right? Like now that we have each other, what do we do? Okay.
So now I want to go, I want to go deeper. I want to go deeper. So we just got the Torah at Mount Sinai. God never stops giving us the Torah every single moment. And this whole idea that the that reality itself is the open text and that all of our lives are this ongoing interaction with God. Okay, let's go deeper into this idea. Now, one of my favorite verses, Psukim, in the whole Torah, and I love it for so many different reasons, but, but one reason, I'm going to read it to you in a second, one reason why I love it is because it sounds like there's absolutely nothing happening in this verse. It is the it is the paradigm of hiding in plain sight. Okay? That's and here it is. I'll read it to you first in English. And if you want to look it up, it's it's in Exodus, Sefer Shmos, right? And it's chapter 19, verse 20. Okay? Now I should tell you something very important about this verse. It is the verse that immediately precedes the giving of the Torah. In other words, the the probably most epic event in the entirety of the Torah itself is the giving of the Torah. So the Torah is about to be given. Immediately after this verse, we're going to have God's like, you know, you know, eternal words, I am God your God. Anochi Hashem who took you out of Egypt, right? So it's the Ten Commandments are about to start. But first we have this verse. And it says, God spoke all these words to say. That's it, folks. That's the whole verse. <laughs> In case you blinked, I'm going to read it again. God spoke all these words to say. Now, You'd have to kind of scratch your head and say, this is your, like, your favorite verse in the whole Torah? Okay, in Hebrew, in case you think that the English translation is pulling a fast one on us, I'll read you the Hebrew. It's, it's no more epic, at least on the surface. That's it. Okay. So if you look at the Balaturim, he says the following. This verse has seven words and 28 letters, and there is only one other verse in the entirety of the Torah that has seven words and 28 letters, and that verse is Breshis bara Elohim arts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, how's that? How is that? Which means that immediately preceding the giving of the Torah is the verse that explains the creation of the universe. (laughs) And God has put them directly together. Okay, so you're going directly from the creation of the universe itself and God in his divinity has combined that with the giving of the Torah. In other words, creation, reality, and the Torah are one. 
I'm going to give you another far out amazing example of this in a moment or two. But let's just try to understand this. Because one of the things that I've really tried to communicate in my life, one of the main ideas that I've tried to get out there is the Torah is not a book. The Torah exists in book form. You can pick it up. You can hold it. You can read it. But the Torah is the fabric of the universe itself. Okay? And we see it in the most amazing way that the verse preceding the giving of the Torah, and remember what Rabbi Edin Steinsel says, that for thousands of years, human beings spoke to God. At Mount Sinai, God spoke back. That's like beyond epic. That's beyond epic, okay? And the moment before God speaks back and gives us the Torah, reveals his will, is the creation of the universe itself. Oh, I got to tell you an incredible Ropshitzer Torah. It's on the Parsha. Listen to this. It says in the Talmud, before you begin a talk about Torah, you should make a joke. Right? Why? Because a, a humor expands your mind. So with that in mind, the Ropshitzer asks one of the most amazing questions. I can't even imagine asking such a question. He says, what joke did God tell us before he gave us the Torah? And he says, God held the mountain above our heads and said that if you don't accept the Torah, you will be buried here in this place. <laughs> wow! I mean, your head can explode from a teaching like that, right? And I guess, I think what he was trying to say is that God wasn't going to put us underneath <laughs> the mountain. But God wanted us to accept the Torah on a level of yira, of fear, as well as love. And so, and so that had to be happened. But would, was God going to like wipe us out? Seemingly not. Seemingly not. Okay, now listen to this. Before we all came together at Mount Sinai, there was an event that took place which we're still trying to get back to, which was that we were like one person with one heart. And how do we know that? Well, Rashi teaches us because the Torah says, uses these words, Vayichael, and the Jewish people encamped in the singular. Remember, there were millions of us. It says in the singular, Vayichan, that's singular, we encamped around Mount Sinai. So what, what that means is we were like one person with one heart. Okay. Now, that phrase, Vayichan Sham Yisrael, well, let's, let's just, just unpack that for a moment. What that means is, is that before we got the Torah, we had to be unified together as like one heart. In other words, what kind of vessel can hold the Torah which is bigger than the world itself? How can you fit an ocean into a Dixie cup? How do you do it? Well, if all of our hearts join together as one, we make a vessel that can hold something even bigger than the world itself. 
If all of us join our hearts together, we can make a vessel that can hold something even bigger than the universe itself. And that's what happened. And so this phrase, is the gematria, says the Jikover, 955. And now he makes a correlation which is like, like in the stratosphere. 955, this idea that we all came together as one, is also the following words. Now the ancients, the ancients wanted to say that the material, the material universe can be broken down into four substances, air, fire, water, and earth. Those are the four essential elements of the physical universe. All right, in Hebrew, that's Ish, Mayim, Ruach, and Afar. Okay, air, fire, water, and earth. When you add up those Hebrew words, it adds up to 955. Meaning to say that when we came together as one to receive the Torah, we united all of the elements of the universe together as one also. We brought harmony to creation. And now, I didn't think that I'd ever live to see the day where I could add to that teaching. And I'm sure the Jikover knew this anyway. But listen to this. If you add up the numbers, 955, that's another form of gematria, where you take a large number and you bring it down to one digit, well, 9 plus 5, remember it's 955. 9 plus 5 is 14, plus 5 is 19. Now remember, we have to make it one digit. So that's, we have 19 now. 1 and 9 is 10. Now we have 10. 1 and 0 is 1. Everything boils down to the oneness of God, which becomes revealed. Okay. And I'll tell you something even deeper. The Torah begins with the letter Bez, right? Which is the second letter of the Olive Bez. Remember, God created the world with the Olive Bez, with the Hebrew letters, meaning to say through the, each letter is a different energy wavelength. Through the energy wavelengths of the letters themselves, God created the world. So everyone has this question. Why does the Torah begin, if the, if the Torah, like the Zohar says, is the blueprint of reality, why is the Torah beginning with the letter B is the second letter and not the first letter, the letter Aleph? Okay? So this is a very, you know, this is a very big question, and, and you could really say a lot on this alone. But what's so fascinating is just the mere fact itself that the Torah begins with the second letter. But now you ready for this? The giving of the Torah, when Hashem says the Torah at Mount Sinai, it begins with the word Anochi, which begins with the letter Aleph, which is the first letter of the Torah. Do you understand? First comes the Bays. First comes and Bayes is related, the rabbis say, to Bayit, which means house, which means this entire universe is a house to store what? 
the Aleph, right? The presence of God. So first, God creates the house. That's the letter Bays. That's why the letter Bays comes in. And then once there's a universe, he reveals the Aleph. He reveals his presence in this universe, which he created and which he existed in before the universe was even created. You see, because there was the Aleph before the base, it just wasn't revealed. First, God makes the physical universe, and then he tells you, Hello! Hello! It's me! I'm here! I'm the one who made this and fills this. I wanted to say, and a very big Torah scholar, one of my teachers, told me that this teaching, I didn't know it at the time, he said, this teaching can be found in the Bahir. The Bahir is kind of like the Zohar, or the Sefer Yitzir. It's a big ancient Jewish mystical text. But, but I kind of came up with this. You know, everybody knows the Torah is black fire on white fire. Right? The Ramban says it in his introduction to Torah. What does that mean? The black fire are those things that are revealed in this world. The white fire, it's not just parchment that the Torah is written on. It's white fire. The white fire are all the mystical realms that are there that we just can't see with our eyes. It's black fire and white fire. It's the revealed, juxtapose all the spiritual universes. So I wanted to say, yeah, it's true. The first letter of the Torah is a base a black fire base. But before that, there's a white fire olive. <laughs> so you can't see it with your eyes, right? But Kaviyocho, so to speak, that's, that's God, because God existed before the world was created. Okay. So, so the Torah is not just a book. The Torah is the fabric of the universe itself. And then it gets kind of like condensed down into the form of a book. So if you were to follow each letter of the Torah, the black fire letters of the Torah, and you had some sort of mystical ladder that you could climb, you would climb from one dimension to another dimension to another dimension, and you would see that the Torah exists on an energy level, right? All these letters exist in the higher dimensions, and that the angels are learning the Torah, the same Torah that we're learning, but they're learning it within the context of the heavenly dimension that they're in. When Moshe debates the angels, the angels don't want the human beings to have the Torah because they're like, people made out of flesh and blood are going to be learning your holy Torah. It's not appropriate. The, the Torah is too holy. And so God says to Moshe, debate the angels so that they'll allow us to, to take the Torah and receive it. And Moshe makes a series of arguments which are so, at first glance, unspectac unspectacular. He says, do you get tired that you need a seventh day, a, a Shabbos, to rest? And the angels are like, well, you know, now that you mention it, we, we don't get tired. Do you have parents that you need the commandment to honor your parents? And they're like, you know, actually, we don't have parents, you know. And 
Moshe Rabbeinu goes through all the Ten Commandments and everything like that. Now, why were these arguments like so amazing to the angels? And the and the because the angels were like, wait, you mean you creature of flesh and blood have another creature of flesh and blood that you emerged from? <laughs> and you have to be nice to that creature? You're commanded to honor that creature? Like, wow! In the spiritual realms that we're learning those words, we're learning them in a different way. Like, we didn't really imagine that, you know, it's like... Like, but you know what? As as much as these arguments are chidushim, are like new revelatory thoughts to angelic creatures, because they're not appreciating it from the human point of view, none of them convince them. There's only one argument that convinces them. When Moshe says, do you have a Yetzirah? Do you have a negative inclination that makes you not want to do these things that you have to overcome? And then when the angels heard that, they were like, wow, human beings are even greater than angels. Why? Because we'll do things wrong. We'll get a lot wrong. We will get a lot wrong based on the fact that we're walking around with souls encased in hamburger suits, right? Based on that, we will get much wrong. However, when we overcome our physicality, we are so ridiculously beyond that the angels themselves said, you take it, take the Torah. God bless you, take the Torah, take the Torah. Take the Torah. You can serve God on levels that we can't even approach. The Chofetz Chaim says that when a person wants to begin to say something bad, like Lashon Hara, something that they're not permitted to say, and then they stop themselves before they actually say it, the angels gasp in envy. The angels gasp in envy at the level and the opportunity that we've been given to serve God that they can't even approach. So one of my favorite stories, again, so before I tell you, when God spoke the words of the Torah, our souls flew out of our bodies. Now remember, you've got approximately three million people all hearing the word of God at once and all hearing the same thing. As a very wise rabbi put it, I'm not sure who it was, I heard it from my wife. Do Jews agree on anything? So how is it possible that all of us, three million people, went, yeah, yeah, of course you don't mix wool with linen. And we're going to live the rest of eternity making sure that this department store garment, before we wear it, after we've purchased it, goes to someone who will take out a few threads and look with a microscope and be trained and then put a label on the inside of the jacket saying that this was checked and there's no wool and linen mixed together in this garment. 
can you imagine three million Jews going, yeah, yeah, yeah of, of course, of course, of course. Everyone agree? Unanimous, it's unanimous. Okay, now on to the 612th mitzvah <laughs> that we've all agreed on. Like, could this ever happen in a committee? Ever, ever, ever. Clearly not. Clearly not. The fact that we accepted all of these things is evidence of the fact that it came from a divine source, through a divine experience. And remember, the Torah itself says, which we accepted, you can't add to it and you can't subtract from it. You see, there are other religions, believe it or not, I don't know if you know this, I was surprised when I first learned this, Christianity and Islam both say, as part of their religion, that God gave the Torah to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. Like, I thought in my ignorance that since they're a different religion that believes different things, that they would deny the fact that God gave the Torah at Mount Sinai. Like, why would they agree to that? But what they want to do is they want to base their religion on this experience because this is the only time in history God revealed himself to three million, two and a half, three million people at the same time. No other religion would have the chutzpah to say such a thing because it would be so easily disproven. And that's why all future religions say there's one prophet, and one guy gets it, and he says to the other people, trust me. But one of the claims, one of the mitzvot of the Torah itself is you can't add to any of these commandments, and you can't subtract from any of these commandments, which puts these other traditions, I'm just being honest, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, I'm just being honest right now, in a real quandary. They've got a real problem. How can they base their religion on an event that says you can't change what just happened? In other words, the very thing that they are looking to ground their tradition in legitimacy makes their approach illegitimate. Again, I say it with all love and with all respect. With all love and all respect. Because we're all God's children. But we also, we also have to speak the truth. So, again, doesn't mean I love anybody any less. God forbid. I love you just the same. But especially in our generation, when so much of What's been handed down has broken down because of the exile, because of the Holocaust, because we've lost all of our tzaddikim and teachers. I mean, there's still a lot of great people out there. I don't mean to speak disrespectfully. But, but I'm saying that, you know, I, I didn't grow up knowing anything. So, so I, I know that there are many people out there who, who grew up like me. That's why we have to understand these fundamental things. So, so... So pardon me if, if that ruffles any feathers, but, but you know, there, there is an objective truth in the world. And 
And that's scary to a lot of people because a lot of people, they think that they have that and they use that as an excuse to kill other people. And that's not our approach. It isn't our approach. You can have, you can have the essential truth and you can love each other at the same time. Okay? That's what we're trying to get out there. And you can have the essential truth and not be obnoxious to other people too. Right? That's also important. Like, you want to build people up. You don't want to tear people down. Okay. So now... I can tell you one of my favorite stories because we're still talking about the greatness of the Torah now. So I attended a class with Rabbi David Aaron in the old city in Jerusalem, and it was the first class of Israelite, this, this, this program he was teaching, and it was an introduction to Torah. So I had been learning some Torah already, but the people in the class, not as much. Anyway, he's standing in front of a whiteboard, and he's he, he starts off the first class of the first session. He goes, okay, what's the Torah? Someone raises their hand. It says, a book of laws. He goes, great, book of laws. Writes that down on the whiteboard. Someone else raises their hand, a book of history. He goes, great, a book of history. Writes that down. Then he calls on me. What's the Torah? And I say, it's the infinite compressed into the finite. He goes, okay, let's hold off on that for a moment. <laughs> but that's what it is. The Torah exists in book form, but it's the fabric of the universe, right? And it's one continual spectrum. If you were to climb a letter of the Torah, you would go from dimension to dimension to dimension, seeing angels learning the Torah at different levels. Not only that, but when God spoke the Torah at Mount Sinai, our souls flew out of our bodies, and do you know one of the things that our souls saw when it left our bodies? That the Torah is everywhere, right? The Torah is everywhere. It's in every dimension. All right. Now I want to tell you another incredible teaching where you see again that the universe itself is the open book. And all of our lives are the text, and each of us are the letters of the text. The Zohar teaches that the entirety of the Torah is contained within the first word of the Torah, the word breishis, beginnings, right? Out of beginnings. Now listen to this. The gematria, the numerical equivalent of the word breishis, is 913. Now the Pischei Sharim, it's a very exalted Kabbalistic text, wants to bring a teaching that this, num- this word, Breshis, which is the, the number 913, you can break that down into two numbers. You ready for this? 613, right, which is the number of the mitzvot, the commandments in the Torah, and 300. Well, first of all, that's pretty Darn remarkable, isn't it, that Breshis, 913, has the number 613 just sitting in front of us the entire time. In other words, all the mitzvahs of the Torah are staring us right in the face from the word Breshis, which is the very first letter of the first word of the Torah. 
Okay, but now what do you do with the other 300? Now, this is wild. If you take the holiest name of God, the Yudke Vavke, and you do this system called Atbash, okay, I'm not going to explain Atbash for you right now, but this is in the Gomorrah, Atbash. It's actually on Daf page Kuf Dalit, which itself is an Atbash <laughs> in the Gomorrah. And, and so this is a very ancient way of understanding the Torah on a deep level. It's a way of exchanging letters in a very particular way, like substituting one letter for another letter. Well, since I'm explaining it, I might as well finish explaining it. So you substitute the first letter of the Torah for the last letter of the Torah, meaning to say At, Aleph, and Taf. That's the first letter and the last letter. Where you see an Aleph, you can put the letter Taf. Or where you see the letter Taf, you can put the letter Aleph. Okay, and then you have Bash. What's Bash? At Bash. Bez is the second letter of the Torah. Where you see the second letter of the Torah, you can put the second to last letter of the Torah. That's gonna. That's the letter Shin. So At Bash is the first and the second letter of the Torah and the last letter and the second to last letter of the Torah. And then for the third letter of the Torah, you can substitute the third to last letter of the Torah. Okay? And the way that you do it is, since there are 22 letters in the Torah, you do the first 11 letters, and then underneath that, in like a horseshoe way, you put the next 11 letters of the Torah. And now you've got two rows of letters, and each one, the letter below and the letter above, have this divine correlation to them where they can be exchanged for each other. Okay. Now, with that in mind, what if you take the holiest name of God, the Yudke Vavke, and you atbash it? Do you know what the numerical equivalent of that is going to be? 300. So now let's revisit the word breishis, which the Zohar says contains the whole Torah. It's the 613 commandments plus the, the name of Hashem. All combining in the word creation. In other words, what is creation? Creation is the intersection of God and the Torah. And you see it in the word Breshis itself. The 600 commi- 613 commandments and the gematria of the Atbash, of the Yudke Vavke, 300, right? Which is the name of God in this context. So God revealing himself through the Torah in creation equals Breshis, the universe itself. And that's not even all of God, folks. That's just one iteration, I mean, one manifestation of God. Because, in other words, God fills this entire world and he exists beyond, beyond, beyond at the same time. God is not limited to his presence in this world. And it's the same one God, Hashem the God of heaven and earth, the God of Israel. So now, how are you going to look at the world? How are you going to walk outside on the sidewalk, right? How are you going to treat the next person that you interact with? 
How are you going to look at them? What about the next opportunity that comes your way? All of life is a conversation with God. And it never stops getting deeper. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them. Thank you.